0: Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell story, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Welcome to our 2021 Oscars coverage. We're doing things a little differently this year. We're devoting an entire episode to three of our favorite awards, Best Sound, Best Cinematography, and Best Animated Film. This week, we're focusing on all the nominees in the Best Sound category, This is a real treat because there's been some amazing sound work done this year. We're going to be looking at all five nominated films today, and we want to give each film plenty of time, so we're going to jump right in. First up, we're going to look at Greyhound, which is Apple TV Plus's World War II action film starring Tom Hanks. On the show today, we've got Warren Shaw, David Wyman, two-time Academy Award nominee, Bo Borders, and Michael Minkler, who amazingly is going for his fourth Academy Award with Greyhound. Let's hear from the team. I think one of the things that, that really stands out about Greyhound is, is how contained it is. It's Obviously, it's a big epic war movie working on an epic scale, but you really, most of the film takes place on the battleship, on the, on the Greyhound ship in pretty tight quarters. You know, obviously, truthfulness and authenticity is really important for these kind of movies. And and we all, you know, there we still have some veterans from World War Two who know very from firsthand experience what these environments were like. How did you go about creating the library uh, for the sounds on the Greyhound that you were going to use to construct the sound for the film?
1: Both Warren Shaw and myself on separate occasions went down and spent a day or two. Uh, on board the ship uh, USS Kidd, which was docked in the Mississippi River uh, in um, in Louisiana. So we were, and, and then we were escorted by a uh, uh, a group of the people that worked there. It's a floating museum. And so they closed the museum for the day and they allowed us full, <clears throat> excuse me, full access to everything. So we got to talk to all the older guys, crew members who had worked on A similar ship. Either they worked on the kid or a similar destroyer uh, to the one that's in the movie. So we were able to go through and listen and record things. Not that necessarily we were going to use those recordings, but we certainly took them on as guides. Um, So uh, the the mechanical aspects of things, and one of the things that stuck in my mind was, uh, because obviously stuck in their mind, was the engines. So uh, two 30,000 horsepower steam powered engine, steam turbines were pushing that boat. And they said that, uh, you know, it's a 350 foot boat. And when they hit it full throttle, that thing was like a speedboat. It had so much capability of speed. And, uh, uh, and, then, and the noise level was, was pretty fierce course, depending on where you were uh, on board ship. So we just took those things as a guide. Um, there's obviously, there's um, massive Foley uh, sessions that were that took place uh, that, you know, tried to recreate all of the hardware on board the ship. Uh, there were sound effects that had been recorded um, by the Formosa group. This this sound editorial went through the Formosa group. So they had quite extensive library of various ships, so we could comb through those. Uh, Warren did a lot of that detail work himself, going through a lot of material, a lot of material.
2: Then I also read, because there's a lot of this out there, i read a lot of first person um, writing about what it was like to be on ships like this. So all that is color, and maybe not the detail of, you know, what this piece of artillery sounds like, but incredibly important, vital. Then <clears throat> I watched an enormous amount of footage, read an enormous lot of, looked at charts of guns and the metals that they were made out of. And we didn't record guns for the show because most of these guns don't exist, or maybe there's one, Bolfers, somewhere in Europe. You know, we didn't have. So, we, so then I just went about with the most amazing sound designer named John Title, who focused primarily on the weapons for the show. Then we just went about creating. What is this sound like? What elements, you know, myriad elements, can we put together to make this gun sound like it sounded? You know, you can watch many YouTube clips of these guns being shot. Obviously, the fidelity sucks, but you can get a sense of what it is. And so, what are the many, many, many pieces we can piece together to make that gun? That's uh, yeah. And so the library began developing uh, that way.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that, that really struck me about the movie uh, is, you know, how woven into the experience sound is. So you've got, you know, you've got, you've got a piece of information that will start with a, with a sonar officer in the bottom, then gets repeated up and then Tom Hanks will bark in order that gets repeated all over the place. And of course, the sonar guy is in the base, you know, he's in the bottom of the ship listening, right? He's, literally listening to underwater microphones trying to figure out what all these sounds are is that is that another ship's propellers that i'm hearing so boat talk to us a little bit about like creating the kind of the the underwater acoustic experience for the audience uh using the sonar and and all that underwater stuff
3: yeah the 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 things like the sonar and the locations and where you are on the ship you know that we look at that as almost like our base coat like Warren with John Tidal and Ann Shibeli, you know, they've decided what is what does it sound like when you're closer to the engine room? You know, when you're when you're up with the captain, obviously you're hearing wind and water and you're hearing the atmospheres, but when you're down in the in the radar rooms and everything, you're you're hearing more of the water crashing against the ship. So, you know, we have all these layers upon layers upon layers to choose from, not even thinking about the music and all the production dialogue and the ADR and you know, it's all these layers. But then when it comes down to it you know, you you start with this realism, you know, you start, you know, you want to feel what does it sound like when you're in the radar room? What is what is he hearing in his headphones? Does it translate through the radio up to the bridge? When you're on the bridge, what do you hear? And then, you know, as we go through the movie, you know, you you, you decide where you're going to bend reality. You know, um, maybe you don't hear the waves anymore down in the radar room, because you want to really focus on The sonar pings and even though the sonar pings are technically only really in the radar room it might be more dramatic to carry them over the cut and carry them into different locations so that's where we start with reality but then we choose where to bend reality for dramatic purposes and that was a really fun element that we basically did from the very start of the movie to the very end the whole direction that we had was this is about momentum and this is about tension and it doesn't let up. I mean, look what Captain Krauss has to go through. The man can't, he, he doesn't have time to eat. He doesn't have time to take a sip of tea. He doesn't have time to sit down. So we were instructed to do that with sound. And it was really fun because even though, you know, my focus is usually the sound effects because that's what's in front of me. But on a film like this, it didn't matter because we're always searching for the tension. Where's the tension? Well, maybe in this scene, the tension is the drums. Well, why can't we hear the drums? Well, because we hear this water pounding and we hear the, the engine churning. Well, maybe we don't hear those right then. So we could really feel these drums. And now where the tension going? Well, the tension is now in the waves pounding. We have this great visual effects shot of, you know, the, the bow crashing through the water. Now let's hear that. Now the drums are our enemy. You know, let's get rid of them and let's move on. So constantly, just just like a puzzle piece, we go through the movie in, you know, a frame at a time and we just decide where's the drama and where's the tension. And I... I'm not precious. If it's, if it's the sound effects isn't doing it, we got to feel the music, or it could be all this overlapping dialogue by, um, by the whole crew and, and, and coming through all these radios and everything. I mean, that, that alone was just such a great source of tension. So that's basically what we did from start to finish is we just, we just were searching for momentum.
0: So David, I wanted to give you a, a chance to talk about, you know, obviously tons of extras, big cast, High quarters on one set, basically how did you that must have been a pretty daunting challenge for you when you got hired, knowing that you weren't going to have a lot of room to maneuver, and how did you approach capturing the sound on set for this film um
4: yeah it, it there there were elements um within that within the confines that, that made it very very hard i mean we just I think we had to be very pragmatic about um who we wired and 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 how we were going to deploy the booms if we could you know if we could get them into the spaces that we needed to get them into um the other thing that you know that i took on (coughs) that that i that i took on board pardon the pun is i i placed a lot of uh plant microphones in front of um actors who may or may not talk you know it it's it's hard to tell in in the in the, run of, uh, in the run of the scene, who may repeat an order and who may not? And I know that sounds like uh, it should have been scripted, but a lot of times, you know, our actors had all been to, to boot camp on the USS Kidd. So they were aware of, of the actions that, that needed to be taken based upon a set of orders from the captain. And that's why it has this incredible flow, and it has this this intensity to it. It's because they're actually just reacting in exactly the same way as they had been trained in boot camp. So, in order to make sure that we captured everything, I had, you know, like I said, a lot of plant microphones. The main cast that had all the lines were always wired, and you know whether they were in battle dress or whether they were in their their standard uniforms, we you know we had a plan for each for each uh, scenario. And then I also added. Um, overhead Omni microphones that I had the paint shop. Actually, I took them apart, had them paint all the cases, painted about 500 feet of XLR cable. And we ran all of that stuff in plain sight, you know, because the the ship is, you know, it, it doesn't have any refinement. You know, if there's a cable running across the ceiling, there's another, there's 1,500 other cables running across the ceiling. So we were able to place those microphones, which really gave us an opportunity to get to get into those tight spaces and make sure that there was audio which we could then pass to to Mike and his crew and and that they could use at their discretion
0: that's great well as I mentioned um, our friends at Apple did give us a clip to uh, to show and talk about and this is a a really wonderful uh, short clip Uh, it's called brace for collision and this is a this is a moment uh, on the battleship a uh, greyhound when it's caught in between two incoming torpedoes coming from slightly different directions and has to pull off some pretty astounding maneuvers to try to avoid getting hit by either one of these two torpedoes that are coming in at the same time.
5: On combat range 1, 1, yards in closing, sir. About one mile. That's a fire. <laughs>
3: Surround force torpedo, starboard beam, bearing 27, range 1500. Left four runner. Left four runner.
0: You know, it's it's. I'm so glad that this movie got recognized by the Sound Branch of the Academy with a a nomination uh, for Best Sound and and you know it's a it's a cliche to say that uh, it's an honor just to be nominated. But you know the reality is that the the nominee it is an honor because the nomination is coming from your peers in the sound business who know what goes into the work. And obviously now that now that you've been nominated for the Best Sound Academy Award. And the actors and the directors and the writers and the costume designers get to vote on it. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to ask you, uh, as the, as the Oscar voters are filling out their ballots and they come to Best Sound and they're looking at the films, what do you, what do you hope that they take away from Greyhound and that they think about, uh, when they're voting?
3: Well, you know, what I'll say to that is, um, I think we're, really lucky this year to be nominated during the first time that they've combined the two sound awards into one award of just best sound. And it's, it's, I I think that's just such a great decision. And this film in particular, you know, this is, this movie is the reason that you would want to combine those awards. We have so much crossover in how much um, editing I did and mixing Warren did and you know everybody had to wear multiple hats. So I don't really look at anybody on our team as the one standout. I mean, from David Wyman all the way to the the final punch on the printmaster, this was just such a team effort. And so now that you know. Maybe back in the day when there were two different awards, people were always fighting for saying, well, I did this. Well, I did this more. And and uh, hopefully that's gone away. And now we're just the team. We are we are the team that brought you the sound of Greyhound. And I'm so proud of all the work that everybody did.
0: Well, guys, uh, congratulations. It's a really remarkably sounding film. Uh, I really had a great time watching it. And, and, you know, congratulations on your Academy Award nominations. Well well deserved.
2: Thank Thank you. Thank
3: you.
1: Thank you. I appreciate what you guys do.
0: Thank you, Team Greyhound. Next up, we're gonna to talk to the sound team behind Mank. Wren Kleist led this team, and Wren amazingly has his eighth and ninth Academy Award nominations this year. He's double nominated for both Mank and for Soul, which we'll touch on a little bit later. Uh, we also are gonna be talking with Jeremy Millod, Nathan Nance, and Drew Coonan, who was previously nominated twice. This interview was pulled from a panel discussion that I led with the team a few weeks ago for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and I want to thank both the Academy, uh, I've always dreamed of saying that, and I want to thank Netflix for letting us use a portion of that interview for today's episode. Um, I've got questions specifically for each one of you, but the first question I kind of wanted to just throw out to the team and let you guys... uh, field it uh, jointly. I've read David Fincher, the um, director of the film, obviously talk about Mank um, and the design aesthetic of the film as what he was going for was he wanted Mank to seem like uh, a, a real movie from the 1940s that just happened to be found in some film canisters next to a print of Citizen Kane, like in the UCLA archive. So, Being that that was kind of the design aesthetic that David really wanted for the film, the question for you guys is what did that mean from a sound perspective? What does it mean to make a film that sounds like it's a real film from the 1940s? And how did you accomplish that? Yeah. I mean, that,
6: that's a, that's the big question, right? Um, That was, that, that started with a lot of thinking, you know, early on, clearly, um, you know, Drew uh, will have the, and, and Ren have the earliest kind of, um, process through that but every step of the way we had to tackle exactly what kind of process we would do how soon would we get into some of those those treatments that we did to make the sound the, the movie sound like it was it was made at that time and and really um, cool to see the treatments that were done to the picture and the treatments that we did to the sound come together to really give that experience yeah
7: and there were discussions with with uh, david with david fincher early on in pre-production about he had this idea of really doing it like that. Could we do it on uh um I it's like you know we could maybe do it on a Nagra, we could do it on uh on a quarter inch. Um you know going back before then and really when they did some of these things they didn't really have quarter inch tape even it would have been uh even earlier methodologies that would be impossible to to redo. But even exploring the idea of doing it on a quarter inch, you know, David likes to do a lot of uh takes. He likes to run long. <laughs> and if you're talking about 11 minutes uh, between real changes, I think it would have been uh, um, very unpleasant on set for him. He would have found that really frustrating. We talked about that. Um, we talked about a lot of different uh, um, possibilities of ways to do it. He, he wanted to try recording with, you know, we did some played around with some ideas of a, of a, of a FUTS some sort of a, a, a filtration early on to try and limit it. And, and, and we sort of, and was with, in conjunction with Ren, a lot of it uh, saying maybe it would be better if we tried to record to maximum fidelity on set. And then you, it would give you the possibility later to choose exactly how much you do or don't want to mess with it and think about it. You could try different versions. You could do, because once we actually do an overlay on the input stage, you're not going to be able to recover some of that stuff later. And, and it would give them more flexibility in post, if we uh, tried to maximize what we were doing on set. I mean, we did things differently than what we would normally do, but, you know, he was obsessed with certain ideas like ribbon mics and things that we we, we managed to, um, I don't want to say dissuade him from, but talked to him about other, the, the, the giving him the possibilities of the flexibility in post
8: greater. You know, when we work on these things and this idea that David comes up with, it's it's, it's a really wonderful idea. And of course we want to we wanna make it happen for him. And what's what was an interesting sort of learning curve for all of us was that, you know, on the one hand we wanna give him exactly what he wants, but on the other hand, we wanna make sure that you know, we as Drew was pointing out, we don't we paint ourselves into a corner, so to speak. And then with that, we had to find a balance of taking what Drew had recorded, preserving it, but and then trying to make the film sound as good as it was as possible, but at the same time, satisfying David, because he's asking the whole time while, while he's filming, like, hey, I really want to be able to hear this old fashioned sound now, how do we do this? And he's very patient, but he's also, you know, we want to give him what he want, wants at the same time. So we had to figure out a way to, to do both simultaneously. And that was a little tricky. Uh, for, for us to do, but we finally got there. <laughs> so the mono, the mono thing, let's talk about the
0: mono thing. So this was part of David's original vision for the film, which is like, he wanted it to be in mono. So what challenges did that present to you guys as a sound team? And then and then Nathan, I've got a question for you specifically because I understand it's not exactly in mono. So I wanna hear a little bit about that as well. We did, originally the, the,
6: the idea was just to do it all just in one center speaker. And we did cheat a little bit in the end. We ended up putting some stuff into the left and rights, and um, and actually, well, we, the...
8: we actually put all the, the music. Sorry to interrupt you, Jeremy, but yeah. we actually do have the music in the left and the right. Just to clarify for people who are watching, sorry, keep going.
5: Uh, yeah, the, and
6: um, and actually went for the. Uh, we actually put some things in the uh, in the surrounds as well, uh, but that was to emulate the the watching it in the movie theater experience. Um, so we did ended up calling it Monorama because it wasn't really completely mono. It was a little bit spread out. So we did end up calling it Monorama. It was an, an interesting conversation, just like you started out with the, the process of all of us um, uh, coming up with, with ways to be able to, to work and to keep our options open, but also achieve what David was, was wanting to hear and, and be able to, to, to work through himself um, in that final mix. Um, so we didn't end up, yeah, the dialogue is, is mono and, and a lot of the movie is mono, but yeah, the music <laughs> spread wide. And like Jeremy said, we did end up, um, not only futzing the whole movie, but also worldizing, essentially. We, we played back the film, um, in the stag theater and, um, the scoring, scoring stage or sorry, the the scoring stage and, um, recording that, that reverberation and, and then putting that into the surrounds to give the, our viewers, you know, the, the feeling of being in an old movie theater, empty and, and echoey and, and imperfect and, um, and really achieving a, a really interesting effect there. So yes, the movie's mono, but we're also, we're also using the, the technology that we have to, to add to that experience.
8: Yeah. Glenn, I just wanted to add before you uh, sorry to jump in, but just one other thing that was really interesting for us to learn was how much we thought it would be easy. <laughs> you know, to, to like, oh, it's easy, just put everything in the center, and then something will take, like, it'll just take care of itself, right? And what we learned was that, and David describes it as, as being like this pipe, which is a really good analogy that, you know, uh, putting all of the dialogue, all of the foley, all of the sound effects, all of the, you know, ambiences, everything down there, we learned quickly, like, oh my goodness, this is difficult to kind of balance. And um, as Jeremy's, pointed out just a moment ago but now we have all these speakers around and we didn't realize how much we kind of lean on the fact that we can put wind out here and 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 different sounds around us that can kind of coexist with dialogue but to coexist with dialogue uh, we learned very quickly that in mono we really had to give to the dialogue more than usual as a matter <laughs> of fact in all departments and um and we did it at one point try to put the music in the center and that's when dave was like okay look let's just let's just Let's just come out. Uh, and then it was like, okay, but we're not mono anymore. <laughs> you know, and he's like, okay, okay, fine. And so yeah. we spread we're, it out. We're know?
0: breaking our rule.
8: We're right. Breaking <laughs> our rule, right? Hence the monorama.
0: Ren, I think you just kind of touched on this, which is like, it, it it didn't fall into place. There was a lot of R&D and experimentation. So can you talk about that process and how you managed to find the right formula?
8: Yeah, sure. I'd love to talk about it. Yeah, um, yeah. David really wanted it, the film to be... F- old fashioned sounding. And then he wanted to then go to another step, which is say, okay, now that we've got this old fashioned sounding film, that's, you know, has this patina, as we called it, you know, we have all these new fantastic digital tools and plugins and, and uh, impulse response reverbs that can be modeled after exotic churches in Western Europe. And, you know, and they're incredible. And, um, and David was, you know, a lot, you know, he shot the film digitally Um, he didn't film it on on celluloid and so you know he he knows that you know that when he's doing his visual effects there there someone's going to be painting something out and moving light switches and putting clouds in the sky and all these kinds of things and he was fully at one point like ready to go we're just going to add digital reverb to this aren't we you know and I thought no we can't like we really do have to worldize this I mean we have to it's like Darn it, you know, we're going to do it. And so what was so great was like, you know, that feeling when you like you're a kid and you just you you get that it's like that Christmas morning toy, you know, and when we played we played the film in the this the this the scoring stage, which is this massive room with this incredible echo. And we were sitting there watching the movie playing and hearing it. We're like, yeah, this is so cool. Right. And we had, it, was that one, it was that moment where we just thought, oh, my God, this is so much fun. But we realized we couldn't just set and forget, if you know what I'm saying. Like, if we've just put in the echo of the, of the acoustics in the, on top of the, the film, it would, after a while, be too much. So we, it was one of those things where we ended up having to dodge and burn each moment of the film to taste so there's some films that are more echoey some films are not so much some are not all it, like for example in the the Hearst castle what there's already natural reverb that that uh, drew worked so diligently to capture with you know uh, boom microphones to get acoustics so then, they, then at, there are times when we wouldn't play the, the reverb so uh, we kind of thought well let's establish it at the very beginning of the film so people get it and they're like oh okay yeah this sounds like an old-fashioned movie and then through time as the film progressed we kind of made choices to get rid of it or have a little bit or more dependent upon the moment.
0: Guys, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join us to talk about Mank. I love this movie. I've seen it now several times. Uh, and it's just, it's it's so, its so great to finally see it after having read the script 25 years ago, uh, to see it all come together. So um, Ren, Drew, Jeremy, Nathan, congratulations on this uh, just amazing achievement. Uh, I love the movie and it's uh, really something to be very proud of. So thank you guys and a, a special thanks to everybody at Netflix who put this conversation together for us and gave us the opportunity to talk about it. Thanks everyone. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Uh, if you want to hear even more about Mank, be sure to check out the recent episode that we did on the Dolby Institute 2 podcast in conversation with both Ren and the director of the film, David Fincher. It was a lively discussion and David is brilliant and hilarious as always. So you should definitely check that out. Next up, we're going to look at the film News of the World and the international sound team behind that film. We have Oliver Tarney and Mike Prestwood-Smith, both with their second nominations, William Miller and John Pritchett, who is celebrating his third Academy Award nomination for this film so you guys are nominated for uh news of the world which is directed by uh paul greengrass and and so uh it's it's a really fascinating movie but tom hanks plays uh, captain kidd the main character who is a uh, a guy in 1870s texas just after the civil war who goes around to small towns and literally reads the news for people who don't have access to that and very early on uh his path uh, crosses with uh, Uh, a young girl uh named joanna who has spent her kind of formative growing up time uh with a with the with an indian tribe and so captain Kidd ends up having to go on a long journey to take her home and that's kind of the driver for the story that happens and and kind of all the adventures that they that they encounter on on their way through so so obviously the entire film is taking place it's basically kind of a western but it's taking place in texas in the 1870s and Oliver, I wanted to start with you, kind of. That's a very specific time and and place. And how did you go about building a library for, you know, the weaponry and the sounds of the wagons and all of the all of the stuff that was going to be needed to kind of bring eighteen seventies Texas to life?
9: Yeah, that was the um, the tricky thing. In uh, you know, that was when we sort of started working on this. The first tent finished maybe a week or so before. Um, the the big lockdown here, so you know normally with a temp you're kind of using temp sounds, and then it was like once once uh, we get on the other side of the temp we kind of know what's wanted because um, they are normally really the first spotting session now is a, is a temp. Um, I budgeted in to uh, fly out and spend a week with uh, Mike Fenton, my co sound designer, recording a lot of material, and then it was basically just that was it. So we um, had to rely on um, everything we already had. We couldn't go out and record anything. Um, out there in um, those locations, but um, we had really good recordings anyway from previous projects of carts and weapons and things, So, um, and we could just tailor blending those to this film. And then in terms of, I guess, the characterization of uh, the audiences um, that are in the film and then the towns you're going to, obviously just a huge amount of reading to find out what the, the general feeling would have been that, uh, there post-Civil War how disgruntled the South would have been that sort of military presence from the, from the North, um, the conflict there and a divided country. Um, but you know, a huge amount of immigration at that time, you know, we looked into, we spoke to Paul about that. Um, there'd been Germans and Chinese and Spanish, um, as well as, you know, from, from all over. And, and definitely we tried to reflect that in the, the crowd sessions that we did and Rachel Tate. Dialogue supervisor and Anna McKenzie, the crowd supervisor in LA, you know, between them, the writing they did to try and give this authenticity to um, the voices and the mix, the, the melting pot of, you know, um, people who have made up the populace in that, at that time. Um, yeah, a lot of effort was put into to trying to keep that authentic of, of what kind of split of people would be in there.
0: Yeah, and the authenticity definitely shows. We've got some clips that the studio has given us to uh, to take a listen to and a look at, and so let's uh, let's take a look at the at this first clip. So this is um, this is uh, Captain Kidd uh, uh, and Joanna learn to communicate. This is a, a short sequence that takes place on the wagon while they're while they're riding along and they're sort of uh, uh, kind of teaching each other some words as they go along. Let's take a listen to this.
10: See the bird, bird.
2: Boo. Yeah. Yeah, it's
11: good.
12: Guto. Guto. Guto.
11: Bird is Guto? Guto. Guto.
0: John, I wanted to I wanted to ask you first about uh, uh, talk to us about about recording on set and the process of of capturing these production tracks. I mean, this sounds like, this sounds like a good clean dialogue, but you're recording on with two actors who are riding on a wagon, uh, you know, outside. So, uh, t- t- tell us about the challenges. Of that. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that that wagon wasn't really quiet for you, was it?
10: But you can ask these guys who saved saved the tracks. I mean, I know that there was a lot of work that had to be done uh, because the wagon was really, really noisy, but before we got to that stage, we had a wonderful prop department, the wagon was their responsibility, uh, and the grips uh, and my boom operator who just literally did an amazing amount of things over a period of several hours to try to quiet that, that thing down, and they, they did. If you could have heard it, what it really was like, it was made way, way worse than what you had to deal with, but uh, we just found every little place that we could find that made noises. The only thing that was a little odd was that there are some shots in it that were shot from, uh, uh, well the wagon was elevated off of on a rubber tires, uh, or uh, the camera was mounted on the, on the vehicle, uh, and it was quieter, uh, that, uh, to matching that with all the really rough stuff, because we would, take, we would just take off, sometimes right out into the, into the bare desert with that, that thing without any, you know, any prep of the pathway. And uh, it was it was noisy. I was really really worried about it. Uh, uh, actually, working uh, and the other three fellows here with me are the ones who kind of you know made it work as far as I could tell.
5: Yeah, the tracks the tracks worked out really well. I, I think actually as well, it should be added that the layer that uh, Oliver and his team put in and and Will all around all the foley and the the backgrounds. You know, it is a quiet film, but actually a lot of what you're hearing is, is, is added. You know, it's th- that, all that stuff really helps to, help to kind of give a place for, all, for the dialogue to sit and, and, and actually sort of help it, the continuity of it all. So um, one of the things it's is super rich in that department.
10: Well, I was I'm curious to ask you guys, though, how you dealt with the, the, with the live audiences that we did, because Paul is one of those uh, directors a, a lot like uh, a few that I've worked with who really want it to, to be as natural as possible. So the crowds were allowed to just be the crowd uh, as loud as they wanted it to be, which of course affected Tom Hanks's performance because he had to play up to that, uh, which he did. Uh, but that was a concern of mine as well because we really those people were loud.
5: <laughs>
10: yeah, yeah, Erath was uh,
5: was a number that's for sure.
0: I'm, I'm, well, I'm really glad you guys brought that up because that's another clip that the studio gave us. So let's take a listen to this right now. This is a. This is a captain Kidd stirs the crowd in Erath.
2: Well, see Mr. Farley, I was wondering if folks might prefer some storytelling from places outside of Erath. Yeah. Just for tonight, Mr. Farley? I think you ought to read from the Erath all the same, captain. Sort of thing these people expect to hear. How About we vote on it. Yeah. How, yes, how about we
7: Mr.
10: Farley's e can keep on with the story of the Men of Kiel-Roth. Well, you know, I, a lot of directors I work with, the, the standard old way is to have the crowd pantomime. Uh, and, and I've had directors tell me they don't like to do it that way because it loses a lot of energy. So we have to work on that. And a great AD can, can bring that energy back if they know how to work with the crowds. Uh, I've done several pictures with Tom Hanks, and, and this was the first time where we let the crowd go. Uh, uh, so to say, what I, what I would say was, we just talked about it a little bit, you know. And Tom's one of those actors, a rare actor that that I could go and talk to. I know the guy, and I could say, here's a situation, you know, what do you want us to do? What do you want to do about it, if anything? And he always got it. He always goes, I know what you want. You want me to be louder, And know? And I'm not telling you that. I'm just saying. This is what
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So, William, you uh you, you mixed the effects uh on the on the film? I did. So, I think you you really got uh you really got a moment to shine uh which for me was the the runaway wagon sequence. Uh that's it's such a it's such a chaotic, scary sequence uh with a lot going on, but it was also articulate and clear. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how you put the, 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 that sequence together.
13: Yeah. I mean, yeah, like you say, there's, there's a lot going on with that sequence, uh, and there's a lot to pick out, but you've also got to keep, keep the energy up. Um, so it was trying to find that balance of being descriptive with, uh, you know, the story that's being told with how, you know, what's happening with the wagon and it falling apart and then kind of getting out of control going that hill and also, yeah, you know, keeping it exciting and keeping that energy level up. So Essentially, our, our kind of process of putting that together was, was running it as a sequence and, and starting to pick out the things that we know we want to hear, um, you know, the the brakes uh, slamming on and then breaking, um, the horses coming by and down, just like picking out those moments um, that are descriptive and then underlayering that with um, things that will keep the energy up, things like the horse hooves uh, and the wagon wheels and that kind of stuff and finding that balance between those two things um to kind of get that sequence working really
0: this mix is a really fantastic i think you could teach a masterclass in in dynamic range and the way you use quiet moments to create tension and then balance that out with some really dynamic you know very very powerful sound forward sequences william you mentioned the the uh, the the sandstorm that's one of my favorite sequences in in the film you know it's, it starts off with tom hanks thinking that there's a whole bunch of you know, he's about to get overtaken by a bunch of horseback riders, and it turns out to be this big, huge sandstorm. And uh, and then they get lost, and they're calling to each other. There's just so much going on in that sequence. Can you talk a little bit about how you built the uh, the mix uh, for the Dust Storm sequence? Yeah, uh,
13: it was a very fun sequence to mix, for sure. Once again, uh, it was the effects on their own doing their thing, so we kind of had free roam to um to kind of go at it really with that. But yeah, like you say, you know, it starts off with uh, with Captain Kidd kind of mistaking what is the sandstorm for for horses. So um, that was kind of a nice thing, you know, trying to find that balance of, it, you know, is it is it horse? You know, as the audience, you don't know either. You're kind of with him, his point of view. You um, just, you know, you think it's horses as well. And then suddenly you find out that it's this storm. Um, and kind of a big part of that was, you know, the entrance into that storm, building that up, um, and, and, and using, you know, cause it, it's, a, it's quite a long sequence to have something so constant. So trying to build shifts in there and dynamics was quite a big part of how we put that together. Um, again, using, you know, the certain frequency ranges available to us, you know, there's a lot of, lot of low end going in there and, you know, and mid and top as well. But if you have that all just going at one time, you know, it's, it, it's not a very exciting sequence so it's um it was all about creating shifts and it was a lot of um kind of separating out those elements and creating movement in them um you know that catches your ear you know each there's a lot of um we use spanner a lot across you know seven one buses to kind of do quick pans of multiple elements that kind of shift in and out of each other um and then we're kind of figuring out the the limits of what we can do with the low end in there um, you know especially. Um, sort of this was the moment in the film where we got to use um, Dolby Atmos to its kind of fullest fullest potential really having full range surrounds objects going it was kind of the per- the perfect moment to utilize the the format really because um, you know it's perfect for it and you know if you if you get the opportunity to watch it in an Atmos theatre it's um, yeah it kind of it you know it hits you hard it's right in the chest and it's with the low end and you know all that kind of top end moving around, it's in a very exciting sequence. And also we've got the dialogues in there as well, but we didn't have to be too wor- you know worried about making sure there's much clarity with that. You kind of get it, it kind of helped with that sense of how enormous this thing was, um, you know. And him getting lost, you know, Tom Hanks and getting lost in that, um, and him shouting through that, we kind of um, could afford to be quite uh, quite strong with uh, with all the sound effects around that.
0: Well, William, I'm so glad you brought up Dolby Atmos. <laughs> I thought you might be. That's fantastic. I think you know when people think about Atmos, um, you know, it's 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 you 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 kind of your mind immediately goes to big sequences like the dust storm sequence and the wagon trains, you know, the runaway wagon sequence, and which uh, of course I'm sure you guys had a, had a lot of fun with uh, with moving the objects around in the in the 3D space. But I'm kind of curious: was Atmos a tool that you guys used in some of the quieter moments as well, and how so?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think actually Atmos works in in many ways. I think it works more, more interestingly when it is quiet because you can feel the discreet positioning of things. And so, yeah, I think we use it a lot. I mean, I know a lot of the winds were in there and, uh, uh, and a lot of the rains and a lot of the natural sounds went that way. But I think actually another component that is huge about it is the full range part. And the music was definitely... You know, using that space sonically to, to sort of speak. Um, uh, yeah, so, uh, Atmos, you know, it, the quiet stuff works really well, I think, in
9: there. And in this one, you know, to heighten, for, for large swathes of the film at least, you know, to heighten that idea that they're out there on their, their own, it kind of felt like just the two people, you know, in the car, and then, you know, just this huge kind of soundscape, you um, push back on the winds there and so that was a really nice thing when you have that really open feel that you can get from atmos to really feel like you have your principal thing there on the screen and then just you know every, everything else but sort of just push back and uh, and there I, I think it really helped with the the aesthetic of the sense of space the sort of expanse of the the visual I think it really helped that
0: I just want to kind of put a question out to all of you uh, what do you think the sound branch members really kind of uh, responded to in the film that got you the nomination and what do you hope the general oscar voters respond to about news of the world when they vote in the sound category
9: no i mean I, I i hope you know you can you can only second guess what other people like but you know i hope that it was the overall you know that it was big when it needed to be big it was quiet when it needed to be quiet and uh, i think it was an overall thing rather than one particular thing so which is which is actually very gratifying you know it wasn't um yeah it's but hopefully just the sensibilities of what we did, you know, married to the film, particularly well.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you guys so much, John, Mike, Oliver, William. It's been a real pleasure. I loved watching this movie. It was it was a great experience. Uh, I think the sound work is just fantastic, from you know capturing the onset recordings through all the sound design and the the editing and the foley. It's just a it's a it's a great achievement. And, and congratulations on your Academy Award nomination. Well deserved.
13: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
11: Very you
0: Thanks, guys, for the great conversation. Cutting that interview down was tough because there was so much good stuff. We may just have to release some of these full interviews as bonus episodes in the coming weeks. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and we'll let you know as soon as those are ready. But next up, we're going to be hearing once again from our friend Ren Kleiss. He is, as I said, a double nominee this year, and I spoke with Ren and Koya Elliott to discuss their nominations on Pixar's wonderful movie Soul. All right. Ren Kleiss, Koya Elliott, thank you so much for coming on the Dolby Institute podcast today and talking to us about soul. I, I feel like I've gotten a, a couple of bites at this apple. We had Pete Doctor and uh, Dana Murray on the podcast uh, a, a few, a few weeks ago and had a great conversation with them about the film. And, and I think I've watched it now four times and I'm loving it more every time I watch it. It's really, it's just a fantastic. I mean i gotta be honest i think it's one of my favorite movies of the year it's just so it's so heartwarming and just a lovely story and a great script and the and and every department in this movie is working at the top of its game so congratulations to both of you on your oscar nomination for best sound for soul thank Thank you. you I think it's it's it also makes me really happy when an animated film gets recognized by the sound branch of the Academy with a with a, a best sound nomination. Koya, you've done uh, quite a few animated films. What do you what do you love about doing sound for animation?
14: Well, I mean, you you get to help create these worlds that are that are created through you know the design of the production. You you get to bring. Bring it alive, you know. Like you said, there's no production sound, um, so you know if if they're in New York City, like we are in Seoul, um, we got to make it sound like New York City. We have to make it, you know, all those signature sounds like sirens and and horns honking and um, the jackhammers on the, and people walking. You know, um, you get to you get to create these these worlds that um, you know otherwise would you know just would be flat.
0: I think that's actually quite a, you did a great job setting up, uh, our first clip. We got from our friends at Disney and Pixar, they gave us a couple of clips to showcase, uh, the amazing sound work in the film. And the first one, uh, is, uh, it's called I Got the Gig. And it's our, our main character, Joe. He's just had his audition for Dorothea. And he uh, uh, he comes out of the club and he's so excited because he's gotten the gig uh, for that night. And he's walking down the street in New York. And, and then, uh, you know, he avoids all kinds of calamities. And then, of course, he falls down a manhole. So let's take a look at this clip.
12: don't tell my mom about this, okay? Forget class. Now, I'm in a different class. I'm in the Dorothea Williams class, buddy. You know what I'm
0: saying? Whoa, whoa, Talk to me about creating the sound of New York City. It's one of the things I think that is remarkable about Soul is how beautiful it is visually and that the team at Pixar made such a Uh, a great uh, effort into making it look photorealistic uh, and the lighting is gorgeous. And how did you match that from a sound perspective?
8: You know, it's interesting because when we started, Pete was really curious about the contrast between the New York sound and then the sound of the other world. And there were a lot of discussions about how they were going to be different. And we even, talked about making one monaural and the other you know uh, surround more surround uh, with more surround sound um, and then this feeling of it being gritty and, and, and noisy was also very important to, to Pete doctor and so this the sequence you just saw um, and then the later sequence when when Joe, uh, and twenty-two swap bodies in there. One is in a cat, and the other one's uh, in Joe's body. And going out the, to New York, the the idea was to really uh, emphasize that. Whereas Joe is used to the sound his whole life in New York, and he's oblivious to it, and he can walk down the street and nearly get run over by by cars, and bricks are falling near him, and he doesn't doesn't realize later the contrast of that with sound uh such that 22 now is for the first time hearing sound and her reaction even though it's in joe's body which is a little confusing is one of complete and utter terror it's just so loud and and uh intimidating so um the sequence you just saw the idea was to play it as if it was normal right and um and so we we try to set up those beats with the jokes uh, as best as we could, with the dog barking and yapping, with the with the little uh, mobilette, the, the Vespa that nearly runs over him, and the bricks and so forth. Um, and so each one of those was a little joke that we wanted to make sure had its precise moment. And what's interesting is that those jokes um, – they're they're tough to do because you have to make it kind of work as a joke from a sound point. Uh, so you can't linger too long with the sound. You have to kind of make your point and then, then finish and let the music take over.
0: I'm really glad that you uh, you brought up the conversations around the contrast between New York and and the the after and before life. Um, another clip that we have to talk about is is um, the great before. So this is uh, you know joe has has died and has gone uh and has gone into the afterlife and um in this particular sequence, he shows up in the great before and he's encountering the souls for the first time and um he encounters one of the counselors uh Jerry well they're all named jerry uh and and Jerry uh carts him and the souls up and they go off to the You seminar. so let's take a listen to this clip.
12: Is this heaven <laughs> no. Is it H-E double hockey sticks? Help! Help!
3: Help! Help!
12: Help! Help! Help. Quiet, coyote! Help. Help. It's easy to get turned around. This isn't the great beyond. It's the great before.
11: The great before? Oh, we call it the U-Seminar now. Rebranding. <laughs> mm-hmm.
12: Does this mean I'm dead? Not yet. Your body's in a holding pattern. It's complicated. I'll get you back to your group. (laughs) Come on, little souls. Get on up here.
0: You know, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me from this uh, Koya and Ren is, is, you know, how remarkable the production design of that world is. Um and I wanted to ask you, and sort of the, the conversations around designing the sound and figuring out what the great before was going to sound like, how were you influenced by the production design and what the the visuals of the world were?
14: Everything is you know very um soft, right? You have you have pastels and you have golds and um you have you know this this wavy grass. And so everything is very soft. So, you know, we wanted like a very soft and then magical, also magical, like what these souls are going in these pavilions and then coming out, you know, with these with these personalities um, and and then the color of it. Um, and then, of course, you know, the shape, the shape of the souls, you know, the the, the noobs, the you know, the newborn souls are, are round and, you know, and then the mentors are also round and soft. Um, and so. Yeah, we had we had fun trying to figure out, you know, like you were saying, t- what what would the Foley sound like for a foot that looks like this? You know, um, what would what would touching a soft, you know, a soft noob sound sound like? Um, and um, yeah, so we did some A, a B tests with that. And um, yeah, just kind of making everything yeah, sound very soft. We When we talked about the contrast of, like, New York City, you know, 22 is only known, the great before. And then when she, like, goes out, you know, into New, you know, the streets of New York, that's why it's like, ah, such an assault, you know.
8: Uh, I was just going to add to what Koyo was saying, that it was important to have a lot of the sound of children, sort of this innocent sound. Um, and the picture editor... Um, Kevin Nolting was. It was really interesting working with him because he, you know, with Pete, were really concerned with simplifying and take taking away sounds. You know, when we prepare sound, we often think, well, maybe they'll want this, so you prepare it. Maybe they'll want that. Well, oh, let's have that ready too. And pretty soon, you have a lot of elements that are ready. And we, when we were working together, um, it was Kevin that said, "Let's just make those all those beats softer." You know, let's make it sound like a pillow, like you're just falling into a pillow. So it's like children, pillows. I guess, you know, very very uh to Koya's, to use Koya's word, soft, <laughs> you know, very, very uh calming.
0: Well, as we as we touched on at the beginning, um it's really rare for the uh for the Academy to acknowledge um you know the the the, the work that goes into the soundtrack uh for an animated film. What do you hope that they think about? for the sound for soul when they get, when they get to the best sound category and they're thinking about the various projects, what do you, what do you hope that they understand and that they take away from soul?
1: I
14: guess, you know, it's a beautiful movie and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful soundtrack. And why is it beautiful? It's beautiful because you it's, it's Joe and 22's journey of, you know, living, you know, of, of, Living and noticing, and and um, you know, I think that the soundtrack reflects that. You know, we, we talked about you know, um, wow, as a soul, it's it's the world is open to you, and it's beautiful, and it's magical, and it's soft, and 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 then when you get to Earth, it's a, it's a little bit harsher. It if you don't slow down, you can really be bombarded by loud sounds and. And big discussions, but if you just slow down and have a bite of pizza, <laughs> um, you know, and en- enjoy watching the the leaves on the ground and the and the sun shining on the maple leaf floating down, and and enjoying a dad with with his daughter, um, and, you know, just the fact that we were able to create these different worlds. And then, and then even at the end, you know, being at peace with, with ready to go to the great beyond, or even at the very, very end, when he just steps out of his door and you hear the sounds of New York, you know, just, I guess, you know, with that, we've created this world that that helps you pause and realize how great life is
8: really, if you break it down.
0: That's great, Koya, that's wonderful. I don't know, Ren, you wanna to top that?
8: Sure, I mean, I, I'm, I'm right there with Koya again. Uh, I think that what I hope people feel when they watch the film and they listen to it um, is the beauty of what we hear in the world. Um, it's also interesting too, Glenn that you know we're so technical in our world, and so we we have a tendency of dividing what we hear into sound effects and music and dialogue and foley but you know people who watch films who don't know about those divisions they don't even know the difference often between music and sound um, they just are listening and f- to that end i feel that what i hope people take away is the beauty of the music this that comes through this character his um his passion for music and for creativity and how that passion creates a soundtrack that we experience as an audience, I think is a really nice part of the film. And so I hope that that's what people get from it ultimately is a feeling of, wow, that's the sound of the music and the sound effects, not even using that word, just the sound of that film really transported me into that man's Life, and in my own life, you know, and people kind of take it into themselves at the end. So that's what I hope.
0: All right. Well, I can't think of a better way to wrap up than that. Uh, than that final thought. Ren, uh, Kleiss, Koya, Elliot. Thank you so much for taking the time today to come on the Dolby Institute podcast to talk about this remarkable film and the just absolutely wonderful work that went into to the sound for the film. And congratulations on your nominations. Uh, for Best Sound, which you share obviously with David Parker. Uh, Congratulations again, and uh, really, really wonderful work.
14: Thank Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you again, Ren and Koya. I also wanna mention that David Parker is uh, also nominated for two Academy Awards this year alongside Ren for his work as the re-recording mixer on Soul as well as Mag. So congratulations to you too, David. If you wanna hear more about Soul, be sure to check out our episode that we posted a few weeks ago and my conversation with director Pete Doctor and producer Dana Murray. For our final segment today, I'm joined by the team behind Sound of Metal, the nominees are all celebrating their first Academy Award nominations for this amazing film, and uh, the nominees are Nicholas Becker, Jaime Baxt, Michelle Kudelink, Carlos Cortez, and Philip Blade. So I, th- I wanted to start off. You know, we talk a lot about the power of sound in storytelling, and and why it's important for filmmakers to think about sound. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is is how sound can be used to give the audience the experience of the characters in the film and i can't think of a better example of that idea than sound of metal obviously you know your main character ruben he is a he's a drummer uh in a a metal band who loses his hearing very very early on in, in the film and the story is his journey as he kind of goes through the process of accepting this and sort of uh trying to adjust to his life with no hearing but i think you know one of the reasons why people have really responded to this film and to your work in this film is because you give the audience the experience of rubens you know what the world sounds like to him as he loses his hearing so i wanted to ask you know there um there are two sort of subjective states uh for the sound in the film you know we start to hear Ruben's experience of losing his hearing. And then later in the film, when he gets the cochlear implants, you also give us that experience. So Nicholas, I want to start with you. Talk to us about the design process of how you figured out how those subjective states were going to sound like.
15: So first of all, what is important that to say that the protest starts one year before the shoot, you know, so um, Darius Came to Paris and we spent like maybe one week just reading the script together. We, we were looking for, for some clip, you know, video clip from other films, reading some book, you know, share a lot of ideas together about, um, what, what would be the idea about to create something which would be very physical, you know. Because I think uh, the, the style of the the, the film also is, is a bit like doc- documentary based, you know. So we knew that we wanted to create something uh, very special. And then after what was important that uh, the physical aspect was again so important, that's why also they asked Riz and Olivia to be able to drum and to play guitar and to perform for real, you know.
0: So our, our friends at uh, Amazon have been gracious enough to give us uh, some, some clips, uh, some scenes to talk about. And one of the ones that, that I, uh, is one of my favorite scenes um, that we have to talk about is, is when Ruben uh, first goes to the audiologist. And he gets the, the hearing test uh, with the audiologist repeating the words to him, and, and he has to repeat them back.
12: Mm. Mm.
15: Noisy
0: Search Throat Ditch Fish Talk Th- Ring Brum Germ you know, Nicholas, uh, this was such a great example of putting the audience in Ruben's experience. But I'm curious, when you were figuring out what that was going to sound like, did you, did you um, work with any deaf people to sort of uh, arrive at what the sound of that was going to be?
15: Okay. So first of all, uh, you know, Abe, which is a brother of uh, Darius, also co-writes uh, the script. And Darius was super documented. So they knew already uh, so much about it. And uh, so I also did a bit of work on my side, but I think what I I bring my 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 uh, I, I I bring my experience, you know, because uh, through like a film like 127 hours or the work I've done on Gravity, you know, I've already tried to 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 kind of create the the sound from the inner positioning you know like the the sound from the inside of the body or or, you know so like what like what we're
0: perceiving inside the body you you talked about gravity and that was sort of the same concept because we got the sound inside the suits right it was coming to us through vibration
15: exactly so the idea was was to think about okay uh, that's what's happening when you actually lose hearing you you still can hear vibration through your tissue and your bones so in a way, your your brain uh, reconstructs something who looks like sound, you know, but which is not really sound. It's exactly when you speak, you know, you hear like your body resonates and that, that's exactly the same feeling. Your brain is putting that with your voice, but it's another sense. It's like vibration, physical vibration. And that's exactly what's happening. Where- ears over your, your hands over your ears kind of thing. You can hear your inner
16: body. Yeah.
15: Yes, exactly. Or when you are underwater, you know, because also what is specific when you are underwater, that's also you don't have to hear anymore. So you have only one sensor, which is your body. So it means that also you can't localize sound anymore. You know? So it's it's, it's muffled, but it's also not localized, you know?
17: Nicolas did a lot of uh, well. So he recorded the guy, so he started to listen to the, the blood, to the obviously the heart, but uh, all the movements of the hands and everything inside of their body is like you you get into another dimension. So part of these sounds are always with the character. Obviously, we didn't put the blood like a boiling machine, but it's part of the sounds. So um, as Michel mentioned, uh, Nicolas gave us a lot of palettes of colors. He already recorded the muffling sounds with different kind of muffled idea with different uh, apertures uh, and colors of muffling So what happened is we we combine this in a way in which we just talk with them. We talked a lot with Nicolas we took a lot of uh, Darius, and then they le- left us in the in the studio and said well let's see what you can you can do my friends
0: <laughs> So it was a really interesting way of working. One of the things I love about this movie is how international the team is. You've got Nicholas, who's in who's in Paris. Uh, the movie was shot in Massachusetts, and then you ended up mixing in Mexico City. Tell me how that happened. Why did you why did the mix happen in Mexico City?
12: Darius uh, called Nicholas because he wanted like a different uh, uh, Hollywood approach for the sound of the film. And then Nicolas was also searching like for something different. And then he was uh, recording a, a music uh, disc, no, I mean, about uh, from Patty Smith in New York. And then there he met uh, another musician and crazy guy Leonardo Hayblum. And then Nicolas talked to ask to, to Leonardo, "Well, I should uh, I should mix." Uh, this film, it's about a, a, a musician that becomes deaf. What do you think? And then Leonardo told him, well, I know the place exactly where you should go, if you want an unconventional way of doing it. And you should go to Splendor Omnia, that is at the postland in Mexico. And you should call Jaime Michel. And that's it. <sighs>
0: so i i saw a tweet from your star riz ahmed that said that you guys had hooked him up with microphones all over his body to kind of get these contact sounds so nicholas and philip like we philip you, obviously you were the onset production mixer so you were recording the sound on the set when the camera was rolling and it it's it's never the fact that you know that the production sound mixer and the film sound designer actually are at the they're at the same time working together. So, talk to us about how you captured that sound on set and like the this this whole idea of of contact mics and how you got all that stuff uh, for Riz's character.
16: Depending on essentially what the situation was that we were recording, because we were still shooting a movie and we only had so many hours to do it, and I knew that we weren't going to have crazy amount of time to be like okay we need to just do this for sound now even though it was a movie about sound we were still shooting a, a hectic movie you had to like shoot a movie it, yeah you know yeah we're still shooting a movie so what we did was figure out a way that we could record the dialogue you know high quality just like you do a real movie booms lavs, plant mics everywhere we can and then at the same time would add an extra layer time-coded you know, through the takes, because we were still, we were shooting on film too. So it's not like we could do 10 takes of everything. And uh, with that, we were able to essentially add an extra layer through contact mics and, you know, anything that we could, we could do. So like the scene where he's, he's banging on the slide, stick a contact mic under there. There's a thing where he's got like the drum, He's, like, banging on a drum, like, uh, bucket thing. Stick a contact mic in there. Whenever we could. Keyboards, tables, that scene where they're, like, banging on the table and stuff. That was kind of our M.O.
15: You know, but also, you know, like, the the, 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 the sequence where he's a, with the audiologist, actually, I was there on the shoot, and, and so we, we, we I, I asked Riz if he could stay a bit more longer in the booth, and uh, so I bring also uh, uh a geophone and, uh, and also I, I, I did a DIY stethoscope mic, stethoscope mic. You know, I bought a very good stethoscope and I, and I, and I put also very sensitive, uh, small microphone inside so I could get like, and I put also a microphone in his mouse. You know, I found a, a microphone, like a, a small microphone for, uh, you know, have adventure, you know, like, and you can, you can, it's a waterproof lavalier. So I put also a lavalier, you know, so I get like from inside of his mind, from his skull, and from his breast, you know. So I was able to have, like, even, you know, sometime in the in the film we are moving from one, play, you know, like one inner sound to another sound, inner sound, you know. So I also <clears throat> give the, the setup to the foley artist, which is an amazing foley artist, Eikikosi. So he was able also to do the foley work with all the setup. So we had, like, a continuity between the shooting with Philippe this white tracks I was doing and the Foley rec- uh, session, you know, we had like all the time, the same equipment to be able to actually create uh, uh, a continuity with it.
0: Carlos, I want I wanted to ask you specifically about that, that sequence and the sound and the, the treatment of the cochlear implants. How did you create that in the mix? How how did you actually manipulate the sounds to create that effect?
11: It was a uh, approach in such a way that uh, we did like uh, certain modules of, different elements that we would provide a certain uh, specialization, but in order to to do that, we had to to create like certain groups. And as as Nico said, uh, we had to put certain elements that would go into even the opposite direction in a way. Let's say a group of of people goes, he turns to the right and it actually goes to the left, but also to, to the back. And they were regrouped as well. And so we started making a circulation of those elements with a specific program in order to, to make the the sensation of everything to be disorienting. And besides that, the character that it already has that it's uh, quite noisy to our perception. And it it can be also very deceiving in, in the, in the sense that you have a relationship of what's going on, but you can really understand it because it's, it's distorted. Is uh, it is
0: uh, noisy? There, there's another sequence that is really beautiful that I wanted to ask you about, and it's it's um, we, we have a clip from Amazon about this, and it's it's uh, so Ruben has had the surgery and had the cochlear implants, and in this particular sequence, they get turned on for the first time, and he's sitting with the with a doctor who um, uh, is activating the the implants and adjusting them, and. A lot of the scene is played out as a close-up on Riz's face, and it's the first time we hear kind of the audio treatment and the sound design of what he's hey, perceiving right? with the implants, and, and it's disappointing. It's, okay. it's not what he wanted. And, and you, can, you can see on his face how, how crushing it is.
1: Here we go.
16: That's my favorite scene in the movie, by the way, Glenn. I'm so I'm so glad you brought that up. But I mean that to me, that's the perfect what Darius did, what Riz is doing, what the sound team's doing. That the 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 cinematography to me, that's the point where it all kind of just comes together beautifully and tragically and everything. Um, but yeah, when we were on set, and this wasn't actually the scene when we were shooting it, but I heard Riz talking to someone on set who had a cochlear implant because we had a lot of deaf actors. And asking him essentially, well, what what does it sound like? And he told Riz that, well, when you first hear it, it kind of sounds like everyone around you is sucked in a giant thing of helium. They're all, hi, hi, hello, how are you? Like kind of like a Mickey Mouse type thing. And then, you know, eventually you kind of get used to it, but you never do. And I feel like Riz kind of had that in his head or something kind of like that. I mean, he was endlessly asking people questions, trying to strengthen himself.
0: I'm so thrilled that this movie got the recognition from the sound branch and that you've received the Academy Award nomination. I know it's your first Academy Award nomination. It's such an amazing honor. I'm sorry, I wish that you all were going to get the full, Academy Awards experience at the Dolby Theatre in a few weeks. It's going to be scaled down a bit because of the pandemic. Oh, but, I'll uh, take it. <laughs> but you know, I I can't. Uh, I'm so I'm so thrilled. You know, it's 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 also very rare that uh, that smaller independent films get recognized for their sound work by the Academy. So I'm really proud uh, that that the that the sound branch uh, has recognized you guys with the nomination. Well, once again, congratulations on your nominations and good luck at the Academy Awards in a few weeks. Thanks for joining us.
16: Yes, I'll see you you guys there. Take
0: care. Well, there you have it. Hopefully that gives you an even deeper appreciation for all the amazing sound work that's been done this year for these extraordinary films. Thank you to our friends at Amazon for helping get us the materials for that last interview. I would also like to thank once again, all of the nominees for joining us today and congratulate them on their well-deserved Academy Award nominations. If you want to check out the films, and I highly recommend that you do, there are links to all five nominees in our show notes. If you enjoy this series, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes or on the Apple or Google podcast apps. It really helps us raise awareness for the series and helps us continue to grow. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our new dedicated podcast feed, which you can find via the link in our show notes or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Dolby. You won't want to miss our next episode. We'll be interviewing the nominees in the Best Cinematography category, which also features some extraordinary work this year. Until then, thank you for joining us. This is the Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. The producer and editor of the show is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, copywriting by Fayette Fox, production support by Taylor Hines, and our production intern is Tristan Enriquez.